0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Girl show. The mission of the show is to spread awareness on mindfulness practices, psychology, mental health and spirituality. My job on the show is to invite world class performers to share their practices to live a fulfilled life. Today's guest is Sarah Ross. Sarah Ross is the UK's number one burnout expert, speaker, mentor and author who uses her experiences with burnout and depression to help others avoid the dark place that she found herself in when she left the corporate world. She founded your reason to breathe as a way to show those burning out at work that there are steps that can help turn the dark and depression into an empowered and fulfilling life. In this episode, Sara discusses about stress recovery, burnout prevention, her volunteer experience in the Vietnam why she wanted to commit suicide. Then keep listening. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm thrilled to have you all the way from Oxford, United Kingdom, UK. It's
1: fortunate that Zoom makes it very easy for us to have conversations across the world. That's
0: true. So how does your family describe now what you do for a living?
1: How does my family describe? I think they they probably see most that I'm a speaker, trainer, you know, I'm on stages, I'm at events. But yeah, they know that it's about burnout and stress. But that's probably as much as they would describe.
0: (laughs) And how do you describe in your own language?
1: Yeah, so I'm a burnout recovery expert. And I basically help people who have burnt out get back to living a great life um, and thriving. And I work with companies to make sure that they remove sort of the things that they have in their company, whether it's, you know, obstacles or processes or even their culture to actually make sure that their employees don't, you know, are overly affected by stress. I always say that, you know, if I was doing my job properly, that I wouldn't be calling myself a burnout recovery expert, that I would be a burnout prevention expert. And so that's the goal to one day not be the burnout recovery expert.
0: You mentioned two things, burnout prevention and burnout recovery. And I would come back to this point in a little while. So how do you define burnout? What is burnout for general population? And how would you define this to somebody, you know, in a layman language?
1: So burnout is, doesn't happen overnight. And it sort of, it kind of builds and builds over a period of time. And generally it is your body is overly stressed and you are overwhelmed by what is happening in your life. Now, the World Health Organization define it as a workplace phenomenon, but I've always seen it as, you know, anyone who's in a role that is stressful, that is, you know, they have to make decisions, can suffer from a burnout at any at any time. And it's really that feeling of, if you are not looking after yourself, if you are not, you know, watching for the body's signs. So when I burnt out, I was getting migraines on a very regular basis, but I was just ignoring the fact that my body was telling me through those migraines to stop and take some time and, you know, and answer some of the important questions that I was, that I was just ignoring or not taking seriously. And I would say, you know, to anyone who's, you know, especially now during lockdown, You know, if you are struggling, if you are, you know, if something doesn't feel right or something that used to make you happy is now not making you feel the same way, then it's time to look at some of the factors around your life and see what it is that you can improve so that, you know, maybe it does make you happy again or maybe you need to change something.
0: Uh, What is the difference between stress and burnout? As a listener, how should I know that I am stressed out or am I burnout?
1: Okay. So burnout is sort of a chronic buildup of, you know, the symptoms of stress and negative emotions. And stress is actually a hormonal change in the body. So when we were cavemen, when we, you know, lived and hunted for our food, we, our bodies genetically gave us the fight or flight response, which is the body's reaction to stress. And when you are in that, oh my goodness, there's a tiger chasing me, your body starts to produce the stress hormone called cortisol, and it does that, and for, for and it asks itself two questions really, and it is, am I safe, and how do I get safe? And that is your body's reaction to stress. So whether it is in the car when you are, you know, you are late and you need to get somewhere your body is still under stress because it's asking those two questions. Now, our bodies, when that genetic kind of composition came about, we were using that on a very short-term basis. So, you know, I would, oh my goodness, I'm being chased by an animal. I run, climb the nearest tree and I'm safe. And my body would stop producing the stress hormone. So it was really sort of like a sprint. But what we have now started to do is to expect our bodies to be able to do that on a long-term basis. So we are, you know, we are trying to do a marathon based on a process that was genetically made for a sprint. And so when we come to burnout, this is because we have tried for far too long on far too little. So if you, you, know, if you imagine your mobile phone, we, the majority of people, if their mobile phone says low battery, will start to stress and look for a plug or a charger, and then they will recharge that phone. But we don't have the same reaction when it's our bodies saying, we need to slow down, we need to recharge. We quite often ignore it. And it's that ignoring it that continues to deplete the body's resources. And so stress becomes our natural state. And because we are in that state of stress, our body is no longer healing itself or resting properly which is what then leads us to what we would actually classify as being burnt out or having a burnout.
0: Are you saying that stress for a long period of time leads to burnout?
1: It can, yeah. Burnout also has characteristics around, you know, feeling, you know, unworthy or not feeling like, you know, overwhelmed by things. So it's not just the stress. But the stress puts the body in a weaker position. And so some of the other things that maybe le- then come up that we would normally see in a burnout come about because the body is just not working at 100% because it's being chronically stressed.
0: What characteristics do you usually see in your clients and people you work with their burnout?
1: So... On our website, we actually have a quiz. We have 15 factors that people, you know, generally exhibit when they are burning out or in a burnout. And it's, a, it's a wide variety of things. So it could be that you're not drinking enough water. You're not sleeping properly. You are using a lot of caffeine products. So coffee or energy drinks, but it could also be that feeling that your to-do list never gets any shorter or you're overly emotional in situations or, and this is the one that I, you know, that definitely impacted me, but I didn't realize it until many years later was that I isolated socially. I pulled back from friends and family and by doing so, you know, didn't had then have the support that I needed because I didn't want people to know just how badly I was doing.
0: You talk about, you know, on, on the brink of suicide with burnout and stress, mm-hmm. Could you elaborate more on that part? What led you to go towards horrible thing called society? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I, you know, I had the Instagram life. You know, I was a senior corporate executive traveling the world. If you had looked at my Instagram or my Facebook, I was always at the airport, flying somewhere usually business class, champagne glass in hand. You know, my life looked pretty amazing from the outside, but from the inside, you know, I was chronically stressed. I never knew where I was from a time zone point of view. My sleep was off and I was having these migraines. And then on top of that, my partner left me. I gave up my dream job, the one where I was traveling to look after my partner who was stressed and needed support. He paid me for that by leaving me about four or five months later and in the grieving for the end of our relationship my health deteriorated even further and by the time I you know by the time the doctor told me that I was burnt out I was having migraines 25 days a month I rarely got to the office Um, I was usually in my room I didn't really leave the house and at that point, you know, I was w- pretty much with my own thoughts. So, you know, all that negative thinking—you know, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure, I can't even get out of bed in the morning. You know, my—you know—our brains are not usually our friends. You know, they want to just keep you where you are. But mine was—I was incredibly negative, and my self-talk was was quite damaging in that sense. To the point where it was like, you know what? I just want the pain to stop, and therefore. That was the point at which I chose a date on which I would end my life. In your
0: corporate job, I want to know what events led you to your burnout.
1: So there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really any singular event, you know, but I was working 60, 70 hour weeks. I was generally taking my laptop home every night and continuing to work. With the travels, I would get home on a Friday night or a Saturday morning and I would leave again on Monday morning. So, you know, I never had time to see my friends or have a social life. I was, you know, eating wise, I was eating whatever the planes fed me or whatever I was eating, you know, to all these countries that I traveled to. But there was no time for exercise. There was no time for a diet or looking after myself. And so, you know, it's a number of factors that build up to it. I just didn't let on that I was struggling. I didn't tell anybody that, you know, that amount of travel was, was hurting me because I also wasn't listening to the signs. You know, I look when I look back at it now, it's like, my goodness. You know, if I had three years earlier, just actually sat down with my boss and said, you know, I'm struggling to do this sort of timeline or i'm struggling to meet this sort of travel commitments i know that they would have been supportive about me changing it but i wasn't in a place that i wanted to admit that i couldn't do the job
0: when you look back now what signs of burnout you had at the point?
1: So, as I said, you know, we we have a quiz where there's 15 factors at the time. When I was burnt out, I had 14 out of the 15. <laughs> wow. Um, I was sleeping less than two hours a night. I didn't drink enough water. I was I was using a lot of energy drinks, caffeine products. I, you know didn't exercise I didn't move I didn't you know look after myself I didn't look after my mental health I wasn't doing things that made me happy you know the the list goes on but I mean yeah when I when I look at people now it's like yeah of this list I had 14 of them
0: (laughs) is there any optimum level of burnout that if we have that level of burnout we can survive or we can thrive
1: well I mean I was, you know, if if the only option that you see is to end your life, you have got to a point of burnout that you are, you know, you are, you are seriously in need of help. And we do say when people take the quiz, you know, if you have more than, you know, 12 or 13 of these, it's time to see a health professional as well because it could be that there is you know, a medical reason for some of these things. You know, you may be depressed or, you know, there may be a hormone imbalance which causes some of these things. With me, that wasn't the case. It was all driven by the fact that I was just continually stressing my body, whether it was with the food I ate or the fact that I didn't sleep properly um, or the fact that I was working these 60, 70-hour weeks and and just not giving myself a chance to actually recharge at any point.
0: And what did you do after that?
1: So for me, you know, my moment where I realized that I needed help, you know, because I had, you know, I had planned to take my own life and I saw that was the only way out. I had this moment in Vietnam and and from that point on, I asked for help. And that to me was the biggest thing was to actually have somebody else guide me out of this dark place that I had got to. because. You know, even Einstein says, the level of thinking that creates the problem can't create the solution. And that was very much it. It was like I had got myself to this place where the the only way out was to not be here anymore. And on the flip side was, well, I don't know how to think any differently. So I need a coach. I need somebody who will help me to come out of that. And I, you know, and it strangely ended up in acting classes to learn how to be a better speaker on stage by being authentic and vulnerable and being able to tell my story without, you know, the emotions impacting me as I speak, but still impacting the audience. And I spent the best part of 18 months around actors and directors and screenwriters. And the biggest learning was I learned to dream again.
0: Where did you go for the acting class?
1: So I I studied under a guy called Bernard Hiller, who is one of L.A.'s top acting coaches, and he had masterclasses all over the world. And so I did my first class in Miami. I then went to Rome and London and New York and L.A. I went to a couple of film festival classes in Italy. So, yeah, I was all over the place. Um,
0: Was it before your Vietnam Trip or after a Vietnam trip?
1: So this was all after the Vietnam trip.
0: Okay, coming back to Vietnam, why did you choose only Vietnam?
1: So there are so
0: know- many countries in the world.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Um, but when I so I took a severance package from the corporation that I was working for, and I, you know, I suddenly had the time that I had never had before. And I wanted to, I had always wanted to go and volunteer somewhere and my heart was set on going to Nepal. I wanted to build a school, be up in the mountains. And yet the two weeks that I actually had free for this first trip, uh, Nepal was pretty much shut to volunteers because it was monsoon season and they shut the programs down completely. Now I had, when I was working you know, as a compliance officer spent a lot of time in Vietnam. So I knew there was a need and they had projects that were about interaction with children, like disabled children that weren't necessarily just how to teach them English. I wanted to do sort of more occupational therapy and life skills with them. And so that's where I ended up an orphanage or a care center for Disabled children, war veterans, and elderly in the north of Vietnam.
0: What What was your experience like working as a volunteer in Vietnam?
1: I found the first couple of days, are, you know, are difficult. You know, this is this is a world that I had never been exposed to before, but it was also, you know, done to working standards and health standards that were different from what i was used to in the western world and you know there's there's always that temptation in the first few days to try and make everything as it would be back in switzerland where i was living at the time and really that lesson around anything that you wanted to change being ethical and sustainable really hit home in that you know you could change lives in vietnam you can change lives in a lot of different places but it doesn't necessarily have to be to the level or to the standards that you would expect in the Western world.
0: Was it challenging for you to adapt to a new culture and new country?
1: So I had at that point, I think I had been to like 75 different countries, working with different cultures and experiencing, you know, what, you know, a different country has to offer and the culture and the people that's always been something that fascinates me. So in that sense, it wasn't difficult. What was difficult was, first of all, I went to Vietnam in July, where it was like 42 degrees or more. Um, 42
0: degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit? Celsius. Celsius.
1: I would generally, you know, spend the day just soaked in sweats. I would, if I were back here, probably not choose to go on holiday to somewhere that was even close, you know, above like 32 or 33 degrees Celsius. And so from a physical point of view, I found that particularly draining. From a mental point of view, you know, there were a lot of lessons, you know, things that you would see and process from a point of view of that's wrong or why aren't they doing more, you know, And then sit with people from the orphanage or, you know, people from that ran the volunteer organization and have them explain to you that it was because of religious beliefs or, you know, their general standards of working and things like this was, you know, at times that was probably more taxing than the fact that it was 42 degrees. And I was, yeah, drenched (laughs) in sweat.
0: (laughs) Do you have any advice for anybody who has never traveled to? other countries than their own country.
1: Yeah. I mean, we live in a world where the internet is available. So do your research, you know, find out what the temperature is going to be like, have a look. And, you know, one of the big things with me was I had gone with the assumption that it was going to be about 30 degrees because I didn't really do my research properly. And I'm five foot 10 and I am, you know, I'm a, curvy girl and that's not something that you can find clothes for in the markets in Vietnam <laughs> and so you know and I, I walked into one shop and the lady asked what I was looking for and I said shorts and she said for you and I was like yes and she just looked at me up and down and and quite blank you know uh, uh, just said for you in this shop nothing and it wasn't meant you know in a nasty way and it wasn't you know, her being mean, it was quite simply the truth that she just did not have any stock that would fit me. And so you kind of, you know, if I had known that I would have taken different shoes, I would have packed more clothes that were suited to that sort of temperature than the ones that I actually had. So yeah, it's, you know, do your research, find out where you're going, find out what the local cuisine is. I mean, if you don't like rice, Asia is probably not a good travel option for you. If you don't, you know, if you like everything to be amazingly sanitary, then, you know, some of these countries, you don't want to leave the, the cities. You know, we had at the orphanage open sewers and, you know, run, you know, we had running water, but we didn't always have electricity or things like this. So, you know, I think the more you can educate yourself before you go about where you're going and what, you might have you might see or hear or smell is really important.
0: Had you been recovered from burnout when you were in Vietnam?
1: No, so that during that first trip I had just decided, like before just before I went on that trip, I had decided that I would end my life six months later. And you know, this was really because there were a lot of people that I wanted to still see and say goodbye to there were things I still wanted to do like volunteer and places I wanted to see. And I, you know, I had the time and the money to do it. So I, you know, I was going to work my bucket list. I wasn't going to tell anybody that that's what I was doing. You know, I would just go and visit people and, you know, have a good time. And, but I was really in that state of, this is the last time that I will see this friend or this is the last time I will see my brother. This is the last time I will get on a plane. For instance, when I then returned to Vietnam, a few months later, because I had decided because of the peace and the, just the sense at the orphanage that this was still somewhere that I could give something of value to somebody else. So I could still hug a child and I could still paint nails or build Lego towers or color in, you know, whatever picture was on the thing. I still felt that I could add some value there. And that's where I wanted to basically spend the last couple of months Giving away all my love and all everything that I could to these children who just craved attention and time with people, and so it was at the height of my burnout. It was the darkest time in my life because I was still, you know, planning to end my life several months later, and I didn't really think any conversations about the future were worth having.
0: Were you in touch with any of the kids? From there still.
1: Yeah, so I go back to the orphanage at least once a year, unfortunately, you know, coronavirus has put paid to that for the next, at least for the next six months, we may not even get out there in 2020. But yeah, I'm in regular contact with the staff over there, they send me pictures of the children, get regular updates, several of the volunteers that I was with. During in that period, we've gone back several times. I've been Father Christmas for the orphanage, I think, three times now. Yeah, it's, it's my place to go and reset and recharge.
0: And how your life transformed after that Vietnam trip? Could you... Walk us through some of the process and steps you took to go to a different level in your life.
1: Yeah, so I was not expecting to come back from Vietnam. That's where I planned to end my life, you know, on that Christmas day, because I had decided that for Christmas, you know, if if this was going to be my final Christmas on planet, then I would be Santa Claus for these children. And so I found a Santa costume. I had the full wig and beard. And I spent the day giving out chocolates and lollipops and all these things to these children. And then at the end of the day, they told us that one of the orphans was dying and wouldn't make it through the night. And that if we wanted to say our goodbyes, we should, you know, do it before we left for the evening. And so I went into a room that I had never been in in the orphanage before. And there was this little girl lying in a crib and I leant over and, you know, she put her hand in my beard and I watched her breathe and it was that moment that changed my life because as she and I breathed together, I realized that, you know, she has a couple of hours left and she is still fighting for every single breath. She does not want to die. And in comparison, I had a plan in place to end my own life and she would have given anything to have all of the opportunities that I did, a family, health, traveling, education, opportunities to, you know, to see the world, this would have been her perfect life. And so in that moment, she gave me the biggest gift, which was a reason to breathe in the sense of a reason to live and to find what I should do next. And why was, you know, why was I given the journey that I was or the path that I found myself on? And so, as I said, you know, I started working with a coach. I started taking part in these acting classes and all of it was to, you know, to push me out of my comfort zone, to change my way of thinking, to deal with the limiting beliefs that were what had kept me in that dark place. And six months later, I'm stood on a small stage at a film festival in Italy and the story that I've just told you around, you know, what happened that that Christmas day, that was the first time I ever told that story. And that was the day I found my reason to breathe in the term of why I went through the journey in the first place. And it was that I would never, ever want anyone else to feel that they should choose that date, that they should choose the date on which they would, you know, die, that they should, there should be people that they can speak to or they should have the tips and tools that I was learning at the time so that they could actually make sure that they never got to that sort of burnout in the first place.
0: What is your reason to breathe now?
1: So my reason to breathe, I have two. One is to eradicate corporate burnout and make sure that everybody has a place to work where they are supported and able to You know, admit to the fact that they're struggling or that they have too much on their plate and be listened to and not have the fear of losing their job or being labeled in some way. And the second one is actually during the time that I was at the orphanage realized that a pair of socks can make a huge difference to especially the children there. And so my second reason to breathe is actually going to be a foundation called Socks for Forgotten Feet where we put socks on the feet of a million children around the world. So orphans, refugees, and those impacted by natural disasters.
0: That is very powerful and noble act. <laughs> so when you say reason to breathe, you mean to say that reason to live and reason to contribute?
1: Yeah. So I had, you know, even even before I found mine, I had never really understood the whole find your why and then everything will fall into place. You know, Simon Sinek's TEDx talk about start start with the why. I was like, why would you start with why? Why would you not start with what, how, when, where? You know, all these other questions. And I really didn't understand the power of having that why that makes you light up, that makes you, you know, that thing that makes you, will do anything to make that that why happen. And when I found mine, you know, you suddenly realize just how powerful it is to have a mission or values that you have, that are actually driving your decisions, because you then always have something to go back to that says, does this move socks for forgotten feet forward? Does this move your reason to breathe forward? And if the answer is yes, then it's it becomes a guide. And if the answer is no, then it gives you you know it gives you a chance to always reinforce that why that reason to breathe that power to say this is what i want to do and this is why i'm doing it
0: and this why slash reason to breathe can be very useful in the times of stress and burnout when we can go outside of ourselves and think something bigger than ourselves and then that can be useful during those times
1: yeah, and I think you know, here in the UK, on a on a Thursday at eight o'clock, we we go outside and we are, you know, because we are still in lockdown, we clap for all the pe- the doctors and nurses and first responders who are taking care of the people who are suffering with this virus and making sure that you know people are safe and getting well again. And it's that sort of thing that people find a purpose you know, in these times where life is particularly stressful and routines or boundaries are being pushed every single day because of lockdown and and what that means for people, that every single week, even if it's only for five minutes, they have that purpose of doing something that is just bigger than themselves. You see the impact of it every single week.
0: And now, since you have practices, routines in your life, you teach people how to prevent and cure burnout how do you take care of yourself now
1: so i'm very much more aware of the things that cause my body to to stress it's always it's always a journey i certainly haven't perfected some of them but i then know when i you know when i have a migraine i'm pretty certain these days that it's due to lack of sleep or not drinking enough water The other triggers that would have been there when I was burning out, those I have got on top of. You know, I do not work 60, 70 hour weeks anymore. I look after my body. So when I feel pain or tightness or, you know, my shoulders feel like cramped or something, then I take the time to stretch and actually look after my body because, you know, it's the only one I've got.
0: Did you drink enough water before recording? Yes, I did. Do you suggest so some mindfulness practices like sort of meditation yoga to prevent burnout?
1: Yeah, so I believe in the power of gratitude. I have a gratitude journal. I take time when I need to to get still and just be present. That's one of the parts of quite, you know, a number of the programs that we have is actually just encouraging people to be present and in the moment and not living in the past or Worrying so much about the future, but just having, you know, just appreciating where they are now and what they're doing. And you know, some days I will do a moving meditation. I will do it when I'm out for a walk, or I will, you know, take some time in my garden, uh, fresh air, and and just be.
0: What is moving meditation?
1: So moving meditation is actually, you know, you can do it when you're walking, and just appreciating what is around you. So. Asking you, you know, things, what can I see? What can I hear? What can I taste? What can I smell? What am I feeling as I'm walking along? Rather than being sat in one place, you know, I'm somebody who fidgets a lot. You know, I've been in classes where, you know, I probably should have been thrown out of meditation classes because I was, I just couldn't sit still. (laughs) And if I'm not sitting still, it's probably because my mind is running at a hundred miles an hour. And so for me, if I'm, you know, if I'm moving, and actually just being present in the moment. I'm still not, you know, I'm still getting the benefits of meditating in that I am my mind is clear and I am not listening to all that chatter and I'm just being still, but I'm but physically I'm not being still. I'm just I'm just doing it whilst I'm out for a walk. So, you know, like I said, I can do it and sit in my garden. That's probably about as still, quiet sitting there as I would get. But other times, you know, I have a friend who jumps on her bike and she does her meditation as she cycles.
0: There are many ways to meditate. and Absolutely. Uh, it's just getting into that zone when you just focus on one thing. And as a listener to this show, I'm thinking whenever I walk, my mind wanders. My mind wanders, thinks about the food, thinks about yeah. the work. My, how can I focus on the present moment?
1: Well, you know, sometimes sometimes our brains just need us to tell us it's okay to switch off. And so we kind of go back to those, you know, those five questions. Think of as you're walking along or sat having your coffee, for instance, you know, your mind might be going, oh, I've got that meeting straight after this. I need to get back to my desk. I need to do my notes. Well, it's time to, you know, just give yourself the chance and ask yourself the questions, What five things can I see? What four things can I hear? What three things can I touch? What two things can I smell? And then what am I feeling in this moment? And just by focusing on those little things, you give your brain a time to stop, but you also allow the body to not stress. And it might be for 30 seconds and it might be for a couple of minutes. But the more often that you can actually stop the body producing cortisol and all those other hormones that it can produce, the happy ones, endorphins, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, you know, those are the ones that are produced by us smiling, laughing, moving. Those are the ones that we want to encourage it. And taking that short respite from that you know, panic or stress about what you have to do next actually makes the meditation more powerful.
0: Did you take your moving meditation for today?
1: I did not, but I just planned for as soon as we are finished recording.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What are you planning to ask yourself during that moving meditation?
1: So I always start with those questions just to get into the to get to be present. And today, you know, I'm working on a number of areas in my life, changing my business, you know, in order that we are, you know, virus proof or pandemic proof. And so there are, you know, I need time just to see what feels right about the direction that the business will move in next. And so that'll be the focus of the meditation today.
0: What are you grateful for during this pandemic, global pandemic?
1: I'm incredibly grateful for the time to actually look at what is important to me. I am naturally an introvert. And so I believe that being locked down and not having to spend time with people would be the easiest thing in the world for me. And I have to say there, there have been more times when I have found this incredibly difficult because I miss the energy of being around people. And so it's not, you know, yes, I miss my family and I miss, you know, my nieces and nephews. There's nothing nothing better than them giving you a hug and, you know, having some completely random conversation with them. But it is also just being in the world and surrounded by people, whether they are two meters apart or six meters apart, but just the energy that people, when they are, going about the daily business bring to the world that's what i miss
0: if someone listening to this conversation is saying i am not an extrovert what should i do <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're not an extrovert i'm, I'm not an,
0: an introvert an,
1: you're not an introvert okay so it's kind of it's kind of been interesting because we you know we go, go into these we went into the pandemic with these labels of introvert and extrovert and i think everyone assumed that the introverts would be fine because we love being on our own or being away from people to recharge um, and the extroverts would struggle because they need interactions and things like this. But I think it's probably safe to say that both both groups have, have found areas that they wouldn't necessarily have thought would be a problem. Yes, the extroverts are missing people, but they're also now aware of the boundaries of You know, they like to have a little bit of space, whereas the introverts would just love to have all their space all the time, but are missing interactions. You know, everything being virtual is not the same energy as having a cup of tea with somebody sat on a sofa. So, you know, for the extroverts, I would say, you know, find the ways that give you the interactions that you need, whether it's, you know, virtual coffees or go on networking meetings on Zoom. And just know that this will not last forever. And so, you know, whilst it is tough now, you know, we, we will get through it and it will be over at some point. And then our normal tendencies, so whether you love being surrounded by people or whether you just like it to be a little bit more quiet, will still be there. We'll just have more knowledge around how we can adapt when maybe it's not possible to be exactly how we want it to be
0: if you were extrovert what would you do during these times this is a <laughs> if hypothetical <I> was <laughs> scenario yes this is very hypothetical but what would you do what would your imagination look like
1: <laughs> so i am in lockdown on my own so i believe if i was an extrovert i would be really struggling with the rules of lockdown not being able to interact you know not being able to see my family or friends or socialize or be outside those, I think those would have hit me harder if I was an extrovert because I would have naturally tended to, to those sort of activities. I would imagine I would be on zoom calls. I would be interacting with people as much as I could to give me that, you know, that energy or that, you know, situation where I felt as normal as possible but yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy either way in lockdown. But I think for the extroverts, that's probably even a little bit harder.
0: It can be harder for any of the groups. It's just how you yeah. deal with the situation, how you take charge of your own life during these times. And we have talked a lot about why burnout happened, what causes burnout. Could you suggest some reset slash recharge techniques to recover? from burnout?
1: Yeah. So we mentioned before, you know, burnout comes because you are chronically stressed or you are not in a good place, uh, whether it's where you're working or situations at home. And so one of the very first things that we do with all of our clients is to go through a process called priority happy, which means making sure that you are a priority in your own life again. And that starts with writing a list of things that you enjoy doing or things that make you happy. And we also encourage people to go back and think about what they used to do as a child that maybe they don't do anymore because of lack of time or, you know, they've just forgotten and encourage them to do one or two things off that list every single day. So for me, this was one of the very first exercises that my coach got me to do when I came out of when I started to, you know, to heal from the burnout and realized that, you know, as a child, I had been a bookworm. I had books everywhere. There were five or six next to my bed. I loved going to the library. And yet when I was burning out, there were no books anywhere. You know, I wasn't reading any books. I wasn't reading fiction. I wasn't reading self-help books. I wasn't, I just was not reading at all. And in those first few weeks, as I, you know, kind of came to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to end my life, but I I was now on a new path, I went to a bookshop the very first weekend and walked out with seven books.
0: Do you remember those books?
1: The only one that I remember is Shantaram, which I still haven't finished because it's a very big book. Shantaram. Um, Shantaram which had been recommended to me by another one of the volunteers. And I had managed to find a copy in this. It was called, it was a little bookshop in the middle of Hanoi. And yeah, I actually couldn't tell you what the other other six books were, but they were all books that took me on. They were all fiction and they all took me to different places around the world, different people's adventures that I could kind of expand and explore by just by being on the pages of those books.
0: I do have... Any one book or more than a book that has inspired you the most in your life?
1: So, my, my favorite book of all time is Jane Eyre. How do you spell that? So, so Jane, G A N E E Y R E. Okay. And it's, you know, it's fiction, English fiction from a long time ago, but it's the story of, you know, a young girl going through life's challenges and how she deals with them. And that book, I think I've probably got through eight or nine copies of over the years, you know, read them until the pages fall out. And yeah, so that would be my absolute go-to book. And then it depends, you know, there are there are other books that I kind of go through phases. You know, I love The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Um, I'm trying to think. What else is around me in my office? Yeah, there are different, different books for different times.
0: Do you have written a book on your own, which is Activate Your Life?
1: So I, in 2018, was part of a project called Activate Your Life. And 50 coaches, transformational coaches, came together and wrote Activate Your Life, which are activities and exercises for people to... You know, make changes in their lives when they, you know, they're stuck or they want to, they want to make a change. So 50, 50 people came together and shared their, their best exercise or the one their clients have the most fun with. Um, so that people could have a book that they didn't read from start to finish. You know, you didn't read it from A to Z, but that you could pick up and just look at the themes and actually read an exercise, work through it. Or if you were a coach, you would have a reference of, if, you're, if you had a client who was struggling with you know, limiting beliefs, then there was an exercise in the book on that that somebody had provided. So it's kind of one that you just kind of dip into as and when you need it.
0: What are your top three favorite exercises from that book?
1: Uh, for me, there was one around setting goals um, and objectives. There was another one around limiting beliefs. And then there was one around, I think it was around time and time management. Do you have practices
0: in a way that you can implement in your life? Or it just a framework? Like time management is sort of a principle, right?
1: You mean in re- respect to the book? Yes. Yeah. So each of the chapters is standalone. And people, you know, you can read it as part of the author's story and then how you would go through the process of, of doing that. So for instance, the chapter that I wrote is that priority happy exercise that we use with our clients. And it takes them through the steps of writing the list of activities, then how they implement that into their life on a daily basis, and then how to make it an even more powerful exercise by adding different memories or adding different parts to it to really create tools as in those activities that make you happy and then as you give more time to them, the impact of being happy more than you are stressed on your life is what's important.
0: Well, Sarah, before I ask you my last question, I want to (laughs) ask you what makes you happy and fulfilled in life?
1: So I am always my happiest when I'm at the orphanage in Vietnam. There is an energy to the place that, yeah, part of my heart will always be there.
0: Do you plan on creating a new branch or expanding that orphanage into different parts of the world?
1: No, so the orphanage is run by the Vietnamese government. There is a foundation, Red Lotus Foundation, who runs the volunteer program, and I will forever support them in everything that they do. For the Socks for Forgotten Feet, we will take. The socks project to countries around the world where socks can actually provide benefit to to the children there, and that will start small. It will start in Vietnam, and it will then go to different countries. You know, as we find, you know, countries where those those socks can actually be of benefit to people.
0: That is a beautiful cause, and I really appreciate that. So, Sarah, where can our listeners find you online?
1: So easiest place to find us online is the website, which is yourreasontobreathe.com dot breathecom All of our social media links are on there. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. There's also a contact form. So if the listeners have questions or would like more information, then please reach out via the website and I'll get back to you um, on that. And if any of the listeners, you know, have you know, you've heard this and thought, "Mm, I'm not sure if I'm stressed or burnt out, then I would invite you to take the quiz, which is yourreasontobreathecom forward slash quiz. And you just fill in your name and email address there. And the quiz is sent directly to you. And then once you've answered the questions, it will give you some guidance on what you should do next.
0: Awesome. I will put all the details in the show notes. Thank you. Great. Sorry, it has been an amazing, wonderful non-burnout conversation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, a very light and relaxed conversation. Thank you, so Thank you so much. Thank you, Nishan.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to the podcast, The Nishan Garg Show on Apple Podcast. You can also subscribe to the show through my website, https: You can also share this podcast with your family and friends or whoever want to feel fulfilled. And thank you so much again.